The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. All right, with that, uh, like I said, I hinted that we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. I was here two weeks ago and introduced the book of Genesis. Basically, what I did was a survey or an overview of the book of Genesis. I'm proposing that we're just going to go through the first three chapters, kind of verse by verse, in detail. It's got 50 chapters. And I'm thinking, I don't know if we could do that in this lifetime. So we'll just keep it at three. That's kind of a logical break, although, boy, there's some really good stuff. I'm tempted to go beyond that. But it's absolutely foundational, um, the book of Genesis. We usually spend most of our time in the New Testament. There's a reason for that, because the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Much of the Old Testament are shadows that are specifically seen and fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is clearly and fully revealed in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul said to his church and to saints of the ages that we are ministers of the New Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant. And so that's why we spend most of our time preaching the New Testament. That's the way it should be. We need to be hearing regularly of Christ. He is the focal point. He's the epicenter. He gives fullness and meaning to all else. But I just thought it would be good to take a little break and go back to the very beginning, the very foundation, the Old Testament. We do need to understand certain things in the Old Testament to really appreciate the New Testament. So with that in mind, we're going to be looking. I'm going to propose that we're going to cover Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 today. One of the most profound, amazing statements made in the history of humanity. We'll see how far we get. I want to do that by answering four basic questions. They're listed in the outline if you have your outline there. All of those questions are answered specifically by this verse. Genesis 1 through 3, the reason I want to cover it is because it's foundational to so many very important things. And I covered a little bit about that last week. You can't really have a balanced, healthy, complete Christian worldview or a biblical worldview without a thorough understanding of Genesis 1 through 3. It's just impossible. So that was one of the reasons why I landed after months of thinking, praying, and considerations, landed on Genesis 1 through 3. Rarely do people preach on Genesis 1 through 3, at least from what I could see and understand in my surveys of local churches and the church abroad. Uh, Like I said, it's foundational to a Christian worldview. Very important. So we need to establish a solid Christian worldview, whatever that means, if you don't know what a worldview is. But I would propose that you can't even understand the New Testament fully or completely unless you know the Old Testament, unless you know Genesis, and especially if you know You need to know the Genesis 1 through 11, these foundational issues, uh, because you're not able to fully appreciate all the truth in the New New Testament. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, Many times the writers of the New Testament, they just assume, they allude to and quote and refer to the Old Testament many times, including the book of Genesis, and they just assume that their audience, their readers, they understand and have a foundation of the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. So you can't, if you're a Christian and you want to grow in the Lord, And you understand the New Testament that you need to understand the Old Testament. You need to understand the book of Genesis. So that's one of the reasons why we're looking at it as well. And you need to 
understand it properly from a biblical point of view, a correct point of view. There are people who are evangelical Christians or pastors or Bible teachers who do teach on Genesis, refer to it, explain it. But sometimes it's not, I think, explained or taught in the right way, the right perspective. And so that would be one of my goals as well. And that's kind of the simple approach. We're just going to read it and take it at face value is what I mean. We're going to take Genesis literally. We're going to take Genesis literally because I think that's how God intended us to understand it and read it. So we're going to read Genesis and study it just like we were doing the book of Romans or just like we were doing 1 Corinthians and Acts. Just assume the words mean what they say. Now, that actually puts us in the minority because there are many who would want to put kind of a metaphorical, allegorical twist on everything, particularly things in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 1 through 3. We're not going to do that. It's just going to be a straightforward approach. I said last week we're not going to spend a whole lot of time confounding or taking to task other views of origins and cosmologies in the world, evolution, all that. I'm not going to spend my time combating that. We're just going to focus on the text. That's where we're going to go verse by verse. So in my study, I'm studying the Hebrew. I'm studying the words, the grammar, the syntax, the context. Very carefully. Because I believe that God is communicating truth, face value through the text that he has given. So again, that will be our approach. For some of you, as we go through Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 3, uh, so for some of you, this will be kind of a refresher. In other words, you've studied Genesis before in certain contexts. So these will be good reminders. Uh, for some of you, maybe this study, Genesis 1 through 3, will be more than a refresher. Maybe it'll give you some, maybe it'll be kind of a complementary study. In other words, some of the details are filled in that you had never thought of or maybe you've never heard of before. So it could be kind of a filler or complement. So either a refresher or a complement. And then maybe there's a third category of Christians out there listening as we study together that it's maybe something a little bit different than you've had before. And that our study of Genesis 1 through 3 might be a reformation or a revolution or a radical revolution. In other words, I might be saying things either you've never heard before or I might be saying things based on the text here that totally conflict with your current worldview. Or that might clash with some settled convictions and presuppositions that you currently hold. That's very possible. And you could be a Christian, and that could be true. And some of these things might disturb you, make you uncomfortable, challenge you, cause you to pause and think, maybe cause you to pose questions, maybe cause you to think critically of me, that I'm kind of an ignoramus and an idiot and not scientific and very smart, although I have a nice suit and tie today. But anyway, so who knows? My goal is just, I'm just going to be honest with the text. And trust that if you're a believer, you've got the Spirit of God living in you and in me. He's our ultimate teacher anyway. His job is to enlighten us to the truth in Scripture as God has revealed it. So that's really our goal. But it could very well be that you find it challenging to your worldview or some presuppositions that you hold. That's very, very possible. I know that's a reality already because look where we live. We live in like one of the most secular places in california no we live in one of the most secular places in the united states of america no we live in one of the most secular places in on planet earth and maybe even the universe so we are just enmeshed 
in a worldview around us that is contrary to the Bible, Christianity, God, Jesus, the gospel, and a literal view of Genesis. I fully understand that. And some of you may be byproducts of a very secular education, great, you know, great institutions of study for whatever it is. Maybe you went and got a business degree or accounting degree, engineering degree, whatever, at some university, had great study, learned math. That's wonderful. Whether it's you know, and locally around here, we've got, we got Stanford, all these prestigious schools and universities. Stanford, Berkeley. Some of you have come from abroad to other great universities, MIT, et cetera, et cetera, and on it goes. Well, the, those schools that I just mentioned in university, UCLA, USC, I could go on. Those institutions of higher learning, they don't have a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview at all. Their presuppositions in worldview is totally in contrast to the Bible, Christianity, and the basics of the book of Genesis. So if you went to one of those institutions, studied there for four years, the contrary of what Genesis 1 teaches was around you at all times for the most part. And who knows if it leaked into your DNA and has the residue is that you've got presuppositions, some of which you know, some of which you don't even know about that are contrary to what the Bible says. These are the kind of things that might get exposed during our study together. But that's okay. That is good because we want to be washed in the word of God, all of us, because we want God to continue to change us and change our thinking and morph our thinking more and more in conformity with truth. That is God's job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's what we want God to do. None of us have arrived. So we want to be subjected to that and have we want to be able to view reality for what it actually is, as God has defined it. The only way we're going to do that is by looking to God's word in Scripture. So that's just a little precursor, just so you're aware as we go through. In other words, don't be afraid to ask me questions or say, "Uh, Pastor Cliff, you said this, and yet when I was taught about the second law of thermodynamics, my professor said this, blah, 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 blah. That's fine. Love to have that discussion. So we, we welcome that interchange. We want to study with integrity, honestly, together. We all want to learn together. That is the goal. Today, we're just going to look at the first verse. said that. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is so amazing, this, this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and and the earth. It is so simple and yet so profound. Now, if you were a Jew from the time of Moses' day, 1400 BC, all for 1400 years up until the time of Christ, in the days of the time of Christ, you were a Jew, you probably had Genesis 1 1 memorized. And probably much of Genesis memorized. And if you were a Jew all throughout history up until even today, Genesis 1-1 is very familiar to any Jew who is at all familiar with the Torah or the Law of Moses or the Old Testament Bible in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1-1. So that's what we're going to look at today. It was, as I said last week, written by Moses, 1400 B.C., when he was between 80 years old and 120 years old, probably written during their wanderings there in the desert before they entered the Promised Land. God revealed himself to Moses face to face, and at times God told Moses, write this down. And Moses obeyed, and he did. And Moses has given us this book, Genesis 1-1. Moses probably wrote it in Hebrew. 
some form of Hebrew. That's God's language. That's how it's been preserved. So here's what Genesis 1-1 may have sounded like in the days of Moses. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. That's Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew. And so that's what we're going to look at right now. So let's uh, go into some details, and we're going to answer those four questions, starting with number one, and that is when. Before I get into the details of looking at the particulars of this verse, just a couple of statements about this verse overall from kind of a macro point of view. First of all, this sentence that I just read is a complete grammatical thought structure on its own, making an independent and complete assertion. So it's a complete sentence. It's an independent sentence. It's an absolute sentence. I'm talking from a Hebrew point of view, a grammatical point of view. So it should be understood and taught accordingly. So that's what we're going to do. In other words, it's not an independent clause. In the beginning, God. So this was written in Hebrew, but at some point in the 1600s, some translators decided to translate Genesis 1-1 into English. And we ended up with the King James Bible in the 1600s, about 1611. And the King James authors translated it this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what? They did a fantastic job. They were amazing Hebrew scholars because that's exactly the way it should be translated. Did you know that today there are English translations that have tweaked it? And here's their translation. Quote, when God began to create the heavens. I'm, so, I'm glad some of you are laughing because it is a joke. But anyway, these are Hebrew scholars. Why do they do that? Well, there's no justification grammatically or syntactically to do that. They argue their case, but it's illegitimate. That's why every English translation that we're familiar with, five most popular ones, all say the same thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Independent, absolute, complete statement. That's the way it should be. But more and more modern-day translations are coming out, beginning the Bible by saying, when God began to create. Why do they do that? Well, they say that it's not, verse 1, is not an independent, absolute statement that stands on its own. It's actually a dependent clause. It's a relative clause it doesn't have completeness in and of its own as a matter of fact it is dependent upon the meaning of verse three to complete its meaning they would say and then verse two is kind of a parenthesis in between but actually that's just not correct it, hebrew in terms of the hebrew grammar it's not correct it's totally illegitimate and the reason they're doing why are they doing that because they just want to get rid of the absolute beginning the absolute beginning of all time For whatever reason, that maybe they hold to a secular view of origins and creation. Maybe they hold to uh, some form of evolutionary theory. But that's why they do it. That's what motivates them. And so if you ever see that, when God began to create, that's totally illegitimate. It shouldn't be translated that way. So I need to say that up front because more and more these English translations are coming out and saying that. And then they try to argue their case. And then they throw in a few Hebrew words to confuse you if you don't know Hebrew. It's always convincing if you don't know Hebrew and somebody starts arguing with Hebrew phrases, right? You get a little intimidated. Whoa, I guess it must be true because I don't know Hebrew and he's quoting Hebrew uh, verbs and phrases. Don't be intimidated by that. This verse has stood the test of time. This is the best translation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it is an absolute independent self-sufficient, standing-alone statement. Although it is elaborated on 
throughout the rest of the chapter. More details are given and flow from it. That's true. But just keep that in mind. So let's go ahead and look at this verse in particular, answering these four questions. Question number one, when? This verse, this chapter, answers the question, when? It answers the question of when of origins. When did all things come to be? A synonym for that is how long has the earth been around? How long has the solar system been around? How long has humanity been around? How long have animals been around? That's the answer of when. The first verse, the first chapter, the first word, the first phrase of the first verse answers the question when. And we're going to look at it. So in the beginning, that's our first phrase, answering the question when. When did all this begin? When did creation begin? When did humans come into existence in the galaxy and the world and uh, the earth and all things that have been created? Does God care? Did he answer that question? Yeah, right here. It's amazing. I remember when I started teaching the Genesis class to, in the seminary up by Vallejo about eight years ago at a master's degree level to pastors. It's a master's of divinity degree, and this is a required class, and began really delving into this stuff. And it was just like commentary after commentary after commentary from liberal theologians in particular, and then it started to infect good conservative so-called evangelical theologians who also started buying into the lie, untruth, misrepresentation, saying that Genesis chapter 1 has nothing to do with answering the question, when? I'm not kidding. This is the majority of commentators. And if I mentioned names, you would some of them would be familiar to you. And you say, well, I like that theologian. I like that pastor. I like that Bible teacher. And I say, well, I do too. Why, why is he compromising on this? But So that's something that is very commonly stated, that you know what, in Genesis chapter 1, God doesn't care about when. He doesn't want to answer that question. That's not even the point of emphasis. That's not an issue. It's not there. Actually, what God is trying to emphasize or answer in Genesis chapter 1 is answering the question, who? And that is what, who God is. That's all God wants to reveal in Genesis chapter 1. Don't get lost in the details. Just God wants to show that he is a creator. That's it. That's the main point you should take away from Genesis. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to read Genesis chapter 1. Just take that. God is the creator, and he only wants to answer the question, who? I wish I was exaggerating as I'm explaining this. But emphatically, they want to get away from the question of when. These are evangelicals. And like I said, many of them are even, uh, conservative evangelicals. Why are they doing this? Why do they want to distance themselves away from answering the question of when? Because inevitably, you would have to answer the question when. When did the universe begin? When did earth begin? When did humanity begin? Then if you answer that question with any kind of specifics, then you are now engaged in an intramural debate with fellow Christians. Not only that, you are now engaged in a debate, in a debate at the academic realm with other scholars and professors of science in cosmology and origins who have answers to the question of when. And their answer as of today, to when is, well, we know that the galaxy or the universe came into existence 14.5 billion years ago, and the earth came into existence about 4.5 billion years ago, and humans came into existence anywhere from 50 to 250 million years ago. So that's their answer. 
And so there are some evangelical Christians who, oh, boy, that's intimidating. They're scientists. They're smart. They know all the details. And all I've got is this old archaic Bible to go on. And so I don't want to look silly. I don't want to look foolish. I don't want to look uneducated. Therefore, I guess I've got to accommodate their views and kind of mix it in with my own. And then that's how we get theistic evolution or other kinds of theories or people saying, yeah, I believe in the Bible, but uh, I believe that I also believe in the Big Bang and that everything came into existence 14 billion years ago. And after all, uh, answering the question as a Christian of when all things began really isn't important. What really matters is who in Genesis chapter one. And Moses wrote this or whoever wrote it to emphasize who God is. He's great. He's creator. He's loving. He's sovereign. He's providential. He puts us in awe. We worship him. That's it. That's all we need to know. Went, no. So Genesis chapter 1 flies in the face of that theory. It does answer the question when. Here's the irony. One of the biggest arguments against taking Genesis chapter 1 literally, or if you're a young earth guy like myself, meaning the earth was created in about 6,000 years, everything, not just the earth, but all of creation, including the universe and all the galaxies, 6,000 years. Where do I get that? From the Bible. It's the only place I get it. Answering the question of when is very important. And what's ironic is the God answers the when question many times throughout the entire chapter of Genesis. As a matter of fact, God doesn't ignore the question of when. He answers the question when with the first word in Genesis chapter 1. The first word in the Bible. That's how ironic it is. God doesn't care about when. Oh, really? Well, he answers the question when with the first word in the Bible. The first word in the Bible in Hebrew is bereshit. It's one word. It's a Hebrew word. It's translated with three English words in the beginning. That is one Hebrew word. It's a specific kind of part of speech. You know your eight parts of speech in English, right? Well, one of those is an adverb. What does an adverb do? Well, an adverb, everybody knows, right? Answers the question of how, when, or to what extent. At least that's what I learned in sixth grade. But anyway, uh, and that's exactly what this first word does. It answers the question of how or when. It's an adverb. God put it there for a reason. Moses, educated guy. One of the most educated people in his day, thanks to his training that he got in the palace in Egypt. Also, he was carried along by the spirit of God. So he had the infinite uh, mind of almighty God at his disposal. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the first word in the Bible is an adverb. And adverbs modify verbs. And other verbs and other adverbs. And that's exactly what this adverb does. This adverb is modifying the main verb here, created. That's the action. God did what? God created. God created when? God has an answer. So that's how important this is. So to answer the question, when did God create all things? The answer simply is in the beginning. In the beginning. And the way this is stated in conjunction with the Hebrew verb being used, bara, a verb only used in reference to God as maker and creator in several passages in the Old Testament. Always means God is the creator. It always refers to usually something that is new. And in the specific tense, it speaks of an absolute nature to it. In other words, he is referring to the very beginning of time, an absolute beginning of time in terms of when God created all things. In contrast to what we're told in the theory of evolution, which would say, well, at one time, actually, there's a couple different views. Because some would say, well, actually, matter is eternal. It's been around forever. But at some point, that matter sprang into more matter. Or that matter sprang into more complex matter. And then that matter was the universe. And that was 14 billion years ago. And then over time, then the earth sprang into existence out of who knows what. 
uh, with pre-existing matter about 4 billion years ago. And then about 200 million years ago, humanity boing, sprang into existence as well. And so they've got all these different points of time. So there never really is a beginning. They're all relative beginnings. There's no absolute beginning with that secular evolutionary worldview. God is saying, no, there's an absolute beginning. In other words, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, what it means is before God created the universe, the galaxies, uh, the angels, humanity, the earth, all the planets, all the stars, everything you could possibly think of, everything that is a created thing, before any of them were created, before any of them existed, the only thing that existed was almighty, eternal God. That's it. So there was a time... Before creation, there was a state of existence where it was only the triune God of the universe that existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that was it. No angels, no humanity, no crystals, no aliens and other planets, no other galaxies that are hidden that cannot be seen, nothing. Just Almighty God in eternity past. Absolutely amazing. If that hurts your brain, that is good. It should. Can't even conceive of that. I believe it, though, wholeheartedly. Why? Because in the Bible... God is the only one who was there. He's the only one who did it. He is the author, and he has chosen out of his grace and love for us to tell us the reality of it, how it happened, when it happened, even though it's beyond comprehending. Because as finite human beings, we have never experienced the reality, or we have never seen something being created out of nothing. We've never seen that. The only thing we have ever seen is something being created out of something else. Think about it. Then when you get a Charlie horse on your brain... Take a break. Wait, have I ever seen anything come into existence that prior didn't exist and it came from nothing? No, we've never seen that. Yet that is exactly what God is saying here. In the very beginning, in the absolute beginning, when nothing else existed save God and God alone, that is when God began creation. Absolute beginning. Wow. That is amazing. Now, I said that the first word in the Bible was an adverb. Actually, an adverbial phrase, in the beginning, preposition attached to the front of the adverb, answering the question, when, in the beginning, that's the phrase, it's an adverb, it means something, and it's placed at the beginning of the sentence. That is also significant in Hebrew grammar, just like in Greek grammar and other languages. Many times, this is not as true in English, but in like Greek, sometimes in Spanish, also in Hebrew, they could kind of tinker with the word the word order, and it wouldn't change the meaning. So you could take a word, say, well, the author, well, I'm going to put this word at the very end. Or, no, I'm going to put it in the middle kind of traditionally. No, I'm going to put this word at the very beginning because I want it to be emphatic. I want to emphasize something. That is exactly what's going on with the phrase in the beginning in Genesis 1.1. It is in an emphatic position. In other words, Moses was trying to highlight its significance. So not only does God care about when, he emphatically cares about when time when did this happen so one of our greatest living hebrew scholars alive today on the book of genesis dr bill barrick says this about the emphatic position of in the beginning in genesis 1 1 quote that word order of putting in the beginning at the very front that word order puts the temporal phrase in a position of prominence and sets the tone for what is to follow what is that well the focus is more on time than other issues End quote. That's amazing. In other words, God cares about when. When did God create all things? At the very beginning, the absolute beginning. There was nothing that existed before he created it. It was him, him and him alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is emphatically true. So in this amazing statement of in the beginning, uh, just I want to highlight, because I, I said 
the answer to the question of when is also referred to several times in the book of Genesis and in chapter 1. So look at Genesis chapter 1, and I just want to highlight a few areas where God answers the question when uh, with respect to time. So in Genesis 1.1, he answers the question of when creation began. Well, is it the very absolute beginning? There was nothing prior to it. And here are other references Moses makes to answering the question of when or time. Time is important for God and also for us and for humanity. Verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Oh, he goes, he specifically details the origin of day and night. Well, what's day and night? Well, that's a complete day, and that's actually how we do what? We time things. That's how we orient our life from day to day, day and night. So that has to do with time or when, markers of time. God called the day the darkness. He called night. Oh, and there was, get this, the end of verse 5, and there was evening and there was morning. Okay, another time issue. God cares about when. There was evening, there was morning, day one. Then he repeats that six times. There was evening, there was morning, day two. There was evening and there's morning, day three. There was evening and there's morning, day four. There was evening and morning, day five, all the way to day six. God cares. He put it in there. It matters. So God answers the question of when all throughout chapter one. He cares about it. It's in the Bible. It's in the text. It cannot be ignored. It can't be set aside out of wanting to accommodate or feeling inferior to somebody else or intimidated by the scientific community. This is what God has plainly said. And we're going to see issues of time all throughout the book of Genesis. The seventh day, chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day. God is being very specific here. He stopped creation after day six. He took a break. He completed his work on day seven. It says he rested. In other words, he was satisfied. He wasn't tired. He doesn't grow weary. He was done. He created everything that he needed to create. He doesn't create anymore. Creation is not going and is not continual and ongoing. Contrary to what some believe. Creation was totally completed after day six. God is resting on day seven. By by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work. God, uh, verse three, then God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it or sanctified it because in it he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. What does it mean that he blessed it and sanctified it and hallowed it? Because God is knowing, God is thinking, I am the culmination of my creation is going to be humanity, man and woman. And everything in creation, for the most part, is done for the sake of humanity, man and woman. Really. God created time for the sake of humanity. Time would be a blessing for humanity. Time would be a tool for humans. God did not create humans for time. God created time for humanity. Just even saying that is radical. God made time. God created time. Prior to Genesis 1-1, there was no time as we know it. There was only eternity in the existence of Almighty God. Absolutely mind-boggling. Those of you who are philosophy majors probably delve into that, this whole theory and philosophy of time. Well, the Bible addresses it. And God sanctifies the seventh day because he's thinking about humanity, the culmination of his creation. He's going to formalize that in the days of Moses. When he sets aside one day for a time of rest and worshiping God. And then that has stayed intact ever since then to this day in 2018 where we have seven days a week all around the world. And we orient our lives accordingly because God cares about his creation. God cares about humanity. God cares about time. I want to look at a couple of uh, New Testament references to this very important issue of 
time in the beginning, that phrase. Uh, look at Mark chapter 10, because this is incredibly insightful, fascinating. Jesus makes a public statement that's short, somewhat cryptic, yet incredibly profound and has ramifications even, even for many issues going on in our day. And I want to point some of those out. And I'm commenting on this foundation laid in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. In the beginning, that phrase, that reality, and all that is invested in that terminology. Jesus was fully aware of it. Jesus was the master of Hebrew rabbis. Can you imagine Jesus, the God-man, the most educated, wise, profound, insightful, discerning Jewish rabbi there ever was, the greatest teacher there ever was, a master of the book of Genesis, likely had the book of Genesis memorized. And get this, could be he had it memorized because he helped write it. Because he is God. Well, Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1, look what happens. Getting up, Jesus went from there, so he's doing some public teaching, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of people crowding in on this rabbi, this amazing rabbi, this unique rabbi, this controversial teacher, this one who supposedly does miracles. Well, he's been having a ministry for quite some time now to the point that the other leaders in the Jewish community were jealous of him. They hated him. They've already decided and conspired to kill him and get rid of him and shut him down. They've already made that decision by Mark chapter 10. He is a threat. The Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, they are territorial. Jesus is undermining their control. So the Pharisees are literally hell-bent on discrediting Jesus. One of the ways they think they can do it is to make him a public scandal. And How do they do that? By asking him questions that he cannot answer. Or ask him questions that make him look like a fool when he answers the question. Or ask him a question where he contradicts current truth in the, in the, the Jewish mind. Or where he supposedly contradicts the Bible itself, the law of Moses. That's what they're doing. Trying to trap Jesus. So they try that here. Verse 2. The Pharisees... They were the pure ones, the master Bible teachers, came up to Jesus, testing him. There it is. This is not good. This question comes from an ill motive. And they think they are so smart. So they want to test him. And they began to question him. So they're peppering him with these questions. They're just interrogating him publicly, trying to humiliate him and intimidate him. And began to question him. And here was their question, whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Why is that a test? That's a trap. That's what it is. This question is a trap. In other words, any way you answer it, you're done. Like that famous question to the husband, have you stopped beating your wife? If you answer yes or no, you're in trouble. No way to get out of it. And that's what they're doing here. Why is this a trap? Questioning him whether, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus said, no, it's not lawful. Then, boom, they got him nailed. Deuteronomy 24 says it's lawful. Jeremiah, another place to say that God divorced Israel. So they could nail him with that answer. Or if he said yes, then they could nail him on that and say, oh, here's this rabbi condoning divorce. God hates divorce. And then they'd quote Malachi. 
Or it could be that they thought they had him on this, because what does he know? He's 30 years old. He's never been married. He doesn't know anything about women. He doesn't know about marriage. He has no authority to speak. If you, had to be, if you were a Pharisee, you had to be married, theoretically. So who knows what they were thinking of how they could trap him. And he doesn't fall into the trap. Verse 3, and he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Now, that's very important because I told you two weeks ago that in the English Bible, it's Genesis chapter 1 through 50. That is not how Moses wrote it. That is not how the Jews codified it, collected it, read it, understood it. They didn't delineate Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. They saw Genesis through Deuteronomy as one book, and it was called the book of Moses, the Torah, the law. It was all one book. And that's what Jesus means. So verse 3 is very important. He says, what did Moses command you? By that, Jesus means that Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. This tells us Jesus believed Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so he's challenging them. So where in the Torah, the law of Moses, those first five books as we understand it, what did Moses have to say about divorce? And so they quote from Deuteronomy 24. They could have quoted from several different places, but they were being selective. Verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Moses permitted divorce. They're highlighting that because Pharisees had outs for legitimizing their divorces for the most ridiculous reasons. My wife burned the toast. Send her away. I'm not kidding. They try to justify it with, by twisting the Bible. Jesus knew this was a twist. Their motives were illegitimate. They didn't understand Scripture properly. They quote from Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, but Jesus said, but, oops, wrong verse, wrong interpretation. You didn't go to the right place. You don't know the Bible. You're not really masters of the law of Moses. Let me correct you. You're twisting that verse in Deuteronomy. God wasn't saying, yeah, get a divorce anytime you want to, sure. Because of your hardness of heart, because humans are sinful, because humans are wicked and evil and self-serving and self-centered, God knew that it was very likely when two people, when two sinners got married at some point, inevitably, eventually, there would be so much disunity that it would, the marriage would just collapse. And God allowed an out in terms of divorce. So there were conditions of divorce that God gave in the Mosaic Covenant. Because you could have one, one as a believer, one's a false believer, deceptive. Or one committed adultery and then deserved the death penalty. That was, divorce was legitimate then. But the reason God allowed divorce was because the sinfulness of man. That was not God's ideal. God's ideal clearly is in Genesis chapter 2. For this cause, for this reason, after God created Adam and Eve, that the man shall leave his father and mother, he shall be joined to, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Permanently, forever. And what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. Let no man separate. Let no man divorce. That's God's ideal. And that is what Jesus was asking. What did Moses say about divorce? In other words, what did Moses say was God's ideal about a godly marriage? And Jesus was thinking, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin, before the fall, before Satan. Because it can still be kept intact, the ideal standard of marriage. Well, they didn't quote from Genesis 1 and 2, but Jesus does. Look at, he says, well, you're talking about sin and accommodating sin. But in contrast, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, 
God made them male and female. That is the ideal. That is God's standard. When you want to talk about a biblical view of marriage, if you're talking about divorce, what you're really talking about is marriage. And if you're a believer and you believe in the Bible, if you're going to talk about marriage, then you need to talk about what Scripture has to say and get God's point of view about the ideal conditions of marriage. That's where you start. That's the starting point. What is God created marriage? How did he define it? What was his design? How did he intend it to function? That's where you start, not with the out of the exception in divorce. So Jesus is saying you've got to have the right perspective. And the way you do that is you go back to the very beginning. And these phrases I want you to look at, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Okay, the quote from verse 6. Jesus is quoting from the book of Genesis. And we saw that in verse 3, Jesus said, what did Moses command you? What did Moses write? And then Jesus gives the answer in verse 6. Well, here's what Moses commanded because here's what Moses wrote. In Genesis chapter 1, God wrote Genesis, I mean, Moses wrote Genesis chapter 1, and in that chapter, he said, God made them male and female. And that is exactly what Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says. On the sixth day, when God decided to create humanity, this is the phrase that Moses used. This is what God said. And God created Adam and Eve, or he created male and female. So here Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 1. Notice that he says, from the beginning of creation. At the beginning of creation, in the absolute beginning of creation, God created the first two human beings. That is contrary to a secular evolutionary worldview with respect to time and the origins of humanity, the earth, and the galaxies. What do I mean? Well, if you ask them, when did all things begin? Well, could be that all things are eternal. Matter could be eternal, as Stephen Hawking used to believe. Or maybe it did spontaneously come into existence. And that happened with the galaxies 14 billion years ago. So this is their chronology or their spreadsheet of how things came into existence. 14 billion years ago, the galaxies came into existence. 4.5 billion years ago, the earth came into existence. 200 million years ago, humans came into existence. So the difference between 200 million years ago and 14 billion, see that chasm, how wide of a gap of time that is? Contrary to what Jesus said, Jesus said from the beginning of creation. So that scale that I just showed you that secular humanism believes in or evolutionary theory, they don't believe that humans were created in the beginning. Humans are an afterthought. Humans are Johnny and Janny come lately. They were not around 14 billion years ago or 4 billion years ago. They're recent. 200 million years ago. And Jesus says in verse 6, no, from the beginning of creation. See, Jesus, he believes in time. He cares about time. He knows what Genesis 1-1 is. He takes Genesis 1-1 literally. He understands the adverbial clause, which is the first word in his Hebrew Bible, in the beginning, in the beginning, the absolute beginning. That's when God created all things. And he did it in six days. And humans were created on day six, a literal day. And the heavens and the earth, the sun, moon, and stars were created in the first three and four days. But it was all in the same week of time. And that's why Jesus could say, from the beginning of creation. During that creation week, all things were created at the same time in that same creation week. Humanity was created at the same time as the sun, moon, and stars. From the beginning. That's contrary to your typical secular worldview. Well, was Jesus wrong? Well, they'd say, of course he was. How how arrogant, how blasphemous, how how damning. 
to just flippantly say, well, Jesus was wrong if there was a Jesus. Jesus was ignorant. Jesus was only uh, going with the science that he knew in his day. So we can't fault him. No, Jesus was almighty, infinite God who is the creator of the universe and also its judge, the judge of every human soul. He knows. He is infinite. And so he said, Adam and Eve were created from the very beginning, at the very beginning. And then he quotes from chapter 1. Then look at verse 7. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now he's quoting chapter 2 of Genesis. For this reason, here's the purpose of marriage. Here's how God started marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. And the two, the man and the two, that's what marriage is. That's God's definition of marriage, not polygamy or bigamy or anything else. The two. He said, a man, singular masculine, and a woman. And the two shall become one flesh. That's God's definition of marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And another thing Jesus does, he just quotes Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 as though they are absolutely complementary. They belong together. It's one unit. It's one story. They are not contradictory. That's another criticism of the Bible, Genesis, and Genesis 1 and 2. People attack it saying, well, Genesis chapter 1 totally contradicts chapter 2. No, it doesn't. Why do you say that? Well, the creation accounts are totally different. No, they're not. They're totally complementary. That's how Moses wrote them. Moses was a master literary expert, let alone moved along by the Spirit of God to write it exactly the way it happened, exactly the way God wanted it. Jesus the greatest master teacher in the history of the universe, knew that, and that's how he communicates it. Genesis 1 and 2 are a perfect complement to one another. And this all happened. Humanity was created in the very beginning. And Jesus is definitely leaning on and dependent upon his understanding, his worldview and presuppositions of a literal face value understanding of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. That is so comforting. Here's a very difficult question. Think about Don't say the answer out loud. Who is smarter than Jesus? No one. Okay, I'll answer it for you. Or who's the smartest person in the history of the world? Jesus. And here was Jesus' understanding of humanity when it came into existence, his view of creation, his view of Moses, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is so incredibly comforting. I believe that Moses wrote Genesis. I believe that Genesis chapter 1 uh, is literal chap the whole book of Genesis is literal? It is historical. We can take it at face value. This is exactly how it happened. God knows what He's talking about. He was the only one that was there. He clearly revealed it to Moses. He was inspired. It is without error. It is authoritative. This is reality. God defined it for us. He loves us. He cares for us. He wants to know what reality is. He wants to answer these specific questions that tug at the heart of humanity. That's what I believe. Well, it's kind of crazy it comes across as somewhat not very scientific yeah that's true at least in today's scientific world so this week i was watching some bill maher youtube videos Uh uh-oh you got to plug your ears sometimes or if you get a good one they bleep 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 sometimes they bleep it out so much you don't know what he's saying because he uses naughty words as all eight parts of speech sometimes but anyway But he's on TV all the time, and he's very popular. He's very influential. He's very articulate. He's very educated. And he is probably the most pronounced, outspoken, arrogant, atheist in popular culture today, especially in America. He's on all the time. 
Number one bestseller. And so I was watching, and he, he just likes to harp on Christians all the time. Just, he, he's written books to bash Christians. Think they're idiotic. And so inevitably on his panel, he has guests all the time. And he's, yeah, just about every time he's got some Christian on there that he just twists into a pretzel and makes him look like an absolute buffoon with his questions, just attacking and attacking. Gen- and one of his questions routinely is, so you believe the Bible? You believe Genesis 1 is literal? And what's so frustrating is, at least the videos I was watching, most of the so-called Christians on his panel who are supposed to be educated authorities on the Bible and Christianity. Just everyone that I saw, so you don't believe in Genesis 1 literally, do you? And they all said, well, no, of course not. But that shouldn't surprise you. That's a common answer from Christians. Because it's not the academic thing to do. It's not the educated thing to do. It's not the scientific thing to do. And so just one after the other, after the other, uh, they say, no, of course not. That's silly. That's unscientific. And, that, and then he makes his case that it's not scientific to believe it literally and to believe that uh, the whole world was created in six days. That's absolutely impossible. And that the snake talked and God made Adam out of a pile of dirt and the first woman out of a rib. That's a joke. Ha, ha, ha. And the whole panel's laughing. The whole crowd's getting into it roaring ha 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 those christians they're idiots those fundamentalist christians and i'm sitting watching the video thinking well i believe that and there's only one reason i believe it is because i read it in the bible and god revealed it to me now if i was not a christian i probably wouldn't believe it because it would seem absurd and ridiculous but i believe it by faith god revealed that truth to me and if you believe it god revealed that to you that's and god did it through the holy spirit who lives inside of you and allowed you to believe this miracle, this had to be revealed. This kind of information of when all things began, man can't discover that truth. You can't study that truth. You can't find that in archaeological research or uh, historical study. That does not come by intuition either. You can't find that in a science lab through empirical study, answering the question of when creation began, or I should say when origins began, when the universe began, when humanity began. God had to reveal that for us to know it. That is outside information. That is beyond our scope and ability. And God in his grace revealed that to his people and enables them to believe it by grace through faith. So I'm thinking, okay, well, his, he says it's a joke. What does he believe? I, didn't quite, I don't quite know what he believed, just other than God doesn't exist and believing this is stupid. And we know the Big Bang is real and it came into existence, uh, all things, 14 billion years ago. Offers no evidence. Nobody was there. He wasn't there. 14 billion years ago. Really? How do you know that? Can't discover that scientifically. That's not empirical. There's no evidence for it. There's no eyewitnesses for it. That's not science. How, how ridiculous. These people po- po- pass themselves off as scientific and yet to believe in evolution and that all things came into existence, at least the galaxies 14 billion years ago and the earth came into existence, four billion years ago, is not scientific because it's based on very non-scientific presuppositions or premises. For example, in the words of Richard Dawkins, at one point there was nothing. Richard Dawkins, the atheist. There was nothing. And then, guess what? Nothing became everything. Now, how does that happen, mathematically or scientifically? Nothing times zero equals everything. Really? That's a scientific equation? That's your science? But really, that's their basis. Or how about this one? So what you're saying, nothing times zero equals everything. So what you're saying is that life comes from non-life. Well, yeah, that is totally unscientific. 
That is not true. We know that today. Life does not come from non-life. Life can't come from non-life. Life only comes from life. That's what the Bible says. God was in the beginning. He is the author of life, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. He brought life into existence. Couldn't have happened without him. And to say the contrary is totally unscientific. So those are just two presuppositions that they hold to that are absolutely unscientific. But anyway, Jesus believed this question was important. When did all things come into existence? And he says it all came into existence in the same week at the very beginning by Almighty God, the Creator. Let me close with this. And that is Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus. Did you know that Jesus is in the book of Genesis? Even though the name Jesus, Yeshua in the Old Testament, is not in the book of Genesis, Jesus is in Genesis several times. But I want to close with this. We'll close with Jesus. This is a good thing to go to lunch on. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 1. Remember, you're a Jew. Uh, John, the apostle, wrote the Gospel of John. John, the apostle, was a Jew. John, the apostle, was probably a Galilean Jew, but John, the apostle, spent much time in Jerusalem. John, the apostle, was probably educated uh, by his Jewish parents, and he was also educated in the Jewish synagogue. He probably had many verses in Hebrew Old Testament memorized. Genesis was probably one of those. At a minimum, he probably had Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 memorized. John the Apostle, he was a Jew. Um, And so this verse in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is very familiar to all Jews in John's day. Everybody knew Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's just basic. It's foundational. It's part of our worldview. Then in 90 AD, John pens this in his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 1. The first word in his gospel is the same first word in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Coincidence? Coinkydink? I don't think so. He's a Jew, full-blooded Jew, from the Jewish scriptures. It's the basis of a worldview in the beginning. So the context here for John is Genesis chapter 1 and creation and how all things came to be and God who is known as Elohim, God the creator. In the beginning, oh yeah, and then wait, in the beginning God created, no, what are, you, what are you doing, John? In the beginning was the word. Whoa, the word, what? The logos, what, what, who's that? I thought it was in the beginning was God. Well, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Oh, okay, so Elohim, God from Genesis 1, 1 was there, but there's somebody with God and that is logos, the word, whoever that is in the beginning. When all things were created. Well, who is this Logos? Who is this word? Well, I'll tell you at the end of verse one, John says, and the word was God himself. The word was deity. Wow. What are you talking about? When did this happen? Well, he was in the beginning with God at the very beginning, the absolute beginning before creation. The word was there. He was not created. He was with God who created all things. He's before creation. Whoever this Logos word was. Verse three, all things came into being. Through him, all things came into being through creation by virtue of Logos, the word, with the Father, with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So whoever this word was, this Logos, he was with God, who is the creator. At the time of creation, verse 10, he was in the world. Whoever this Logos was, he came into the world. He was born as a human. He lived on planet Earth. Verse 10, he was in the world, and get this, the world was made through him. Wow. This Not only did God create the world, but the world, the Logos, also created the world with God. Whoever the Logos is and whoever the, the uh, this God is. He came into the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Who is this word? 
that was with God at the beginning of creation, before creation. That God used to bring all creation through him. Well, he tells us in verse 14, and the word became flesh. The word became a man. Wow. And dwelt among us, John says. I was an eyewitness of this word. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen him at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Wow. This is amazing. You know what John is telling us? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, needs to be understood and interpreted Christocentrically, in light of Christ. Very clearly. He said two times, verse 3 and verse 10, all things were created through Christ, through Jesus. Jesus, as the word before he became a human, was with the Father at the time of creation, before creation. And all of creation was brought into existence through the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Absolutely amazing. That is the testimony of the New Testament. That is our triune almighty God. And that is our blessed Savior. And because Jesus, according to John and many other passages, because Jesus is indeed the creator, that means he is sovereign, he is in control, and because he is creator, he also has the right to judge. And because he is the creator, he is a perfect, sinless God with the Father. So he has the credentials to judge, and he will indeed be the judge of every soul. And because he is the creator and has the right to judge, he also has the authority to be the Savior. And because God loves his creation, he came down in the form of a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life as the God-man, literally to go to a cross to be crucified and to be punished for sin, to appease God the Father. And then he was buried, rose again from the dead, ascended on high, went back to the Father who he's lived with for all eternity. And Jesus reigns today as creator, as judge, and as blessed Savior. And anybody who recognizes that they are a sinner and they recognize who Jesus really is, that he is the Savior, he's the only Savior, he's the only way to heaven, he's the only way you can have your sins forgiven, he's the only way you can be redeemed, reconciled, and born again, and you cry out to him, Lord Jesus, save me. Jesus will answer that prayer and he will save you from your sin. And then he becomes your blessed Savior and you're adopted into his spiritual family. And that's why we're here today at church. Assuming that you know this Jesus Christ, not just the Savior, but the creator of the universe, the eternal one. And that should compel us to worship him. With that, let's go ahead and pray to this triune creator and blessed Savior. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the opportunity to look to your word and to look at such a foundational passage, Genesis chapter 1 to be informed of, to be reminded of, to be challenged with such basic fundamental truths about who you are, about how we got here, and about who Jesus is. Thank you, God, for your grace, for loving your creation. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the solution to problems, to wickedness, to sin, And thank you that we can embrace you just simply by grace through faith. And your promises, you'll save us, you'll transform us and adopt us into your family. We we just rejoice in that wonderful, majestic truth and continue to prompt us to share it with others we know who don't know you yet and that we will keep them in prayer. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. 
For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.